Welcome to the Global Band Room, a podcast about bands and musicians across the world. My name is Keith Kelly, and I'm a band director from the west coast of Ireland. Each episode, I sit down with musicians to talk about their stories and bands and how they're making an impact in their communities. Before we start, you can find out more about the podcast and the people and stories that we feature over at globalbandroom.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom. All of the Global Bandroom podcasts are brought to you by Kaleidoscope Adventures. Find out how you can travel beyond expectations at mykatrip.com. Now on with the show. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by today's guest. This is my first opportunity to talk to her and find out about her work and her career. Uh, She is the Director of Instrumental Ensembles and Assistant Professor of Music at Pierce College and uh, someone who I am very excited to learn about uh, and particularly her and We Were Heard initiative, which is... um, something very dear to my own heart here. Uh, this is Ka- Caitlin Bove. Uh, Caitlin, very welcome to the Global Band Room. Um, how are you? How are you keeping? Great. Thanks for having me, Keith. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to have you here. Um, Caitlin, we connected, um, we were, uh, I was joking with David Vickerman on a re- recent podcast um, that uh, we were one of these Facebook uh, COVID connections where uh, anyone that was used to attending uh, conventions couldn't suddenly attend the con- conventions and were, you know, you, where they normally have a chance to meet new people. Um and Facebook was the was the opportunity to do that, and you were you were, you graciously accepted my friend request. So I thank you very much for that. <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, Caitlin. Let's talk a little bit about um, how the last year has has been. Well, eighteen months or so. Um, how how have you handled the the pandemic and and work over the the last eighteen months? Well, we're finally back in person uh, with my ensembles after about a year and a half off. And uh, prior to that, we were doing all of our courses online. So after my initial tantrum that I threw when they can't, <laughs> when they canceled our concert um, in March 2020, about 10 days prior to the concert, and I sent everyone home with the music thinking, ah, you'll be back in two weeks and we'll reschedule. <laughs> Uh, we did get really, really creative for the 2020, uh, 2021 school year. So coming up with lots of projects that we could complete online, uh, with virtual recordings, uh, having the students start to come up with, uh, improvisations, compositions, and working more collaboratively with each other and with, um, other artists or people outside of the music spectrum. So actually, even though, you know, I wouldn't wish a repeat of the pandemic in any kind of way. It did expand, I think, what we could do with our ensembles and give my students a lot of opportunities outside that traditional sit in your seat, play your third trumpet part, don't talk, and then leave the room. So I've been able to bring some of those new collaborative techniques back into the rehearsal room. And um, that's actually been really exciting. And do you think they'll stick? Um, do, do you have you? found that any of the techniques that you were using over the last 18 months, have you been using them in recent weeks uh, as you're back to, to school? Uh, yeah, actually every day. Um, for for ensembles specifically, a, f- a few things we're doing is we're still performing flexible instrumentation music. Even with my full ensemble, uh, we're hmm. still, you know, 45 piece band. I'm still putting out uh, flexible instrumentation music. I actually commissioned a piece over the pandemic 
to not only be for flex band, but uh, each flexible part have two difficulty levels so that students at a at a lower performance ability could still participate in a more advanced piece. And it has an electronic track, which means that the practicing at home kind of is more engaging and fun to do. So uh, that was one thing that we're still working on. I, I also kept uh, the students from my full band and my string orchestra together in a, in a hybrid flexible ensemble for a, additional rehearsal each week. My school was let me keep them in that setup. And so we've been able to continue working on flexible music, the students composing pieces of music for that group and doing other projects with that group. And that group is uh, string players, wind players, percussionists. I even have a guitarist in that class now. And so it's really kind of stretching what it means to be in an ensemble and every student's mm. learning to be a much more like leader and independent player in a way that we wouldn't have never had before the pandemic. You know, like, obviously I come from a country where, um, we've always had to be flexible. Yeah. <laughs> even, even, even when, uh, when, when the parts weren't marked flex part, we were playing them flex part. That's, that uh, works. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering your, your rationale, like to commission flex band parts, had you advocated for flex music prior to the pandemic? Was it something that you had dabbled in at all? You know, it's really funny. Um, Prior to the pandemic, I was already planning on launching the the flex instrumentation ensemble that I've kept on post pandemic, because okay. I have my my position is at a junior college, so my full ensembles are comprised of students at the college and also adult community members, and I wanted to give the students a space where they could all just work with each other, outside of their traditional ensembles with the adults where sometimes the adult dynamics and the long-term membership kind of play into what the students can get to do. So I had actually been commissioning flex pieces in fall of 2019, anticipating that group Mm. starting up and then the pandemic happened. And when we finally were able to come back from the pandemic with limited rehearsals in 2021, um, I already had some pieces ready to go, which was pretty awesome. And uh, back when I used to teach at the junior high middle school level, I also, there were a few pieces in our um, library that were just there before I got there that were flexible. And I remember one piece in particular had multiple difficulty levels on some of the parts. And I just thought that was so ingenious because it's so inclusive. Like to me, ensembles is the most inclusive thing you could possibly do in the world, you know, Mm, uh, if you think of all like sports is there's a lot of exclusivity to sports and, uh, a lot of things are just so incredibly skill-based that it's hard for people to interact at different skill levels. But I think with ensembles, we have the ability to make it completely inclusive that somebody who is brand new to their instrument versus somebody who's been playing their whole life could be in a, a group together. And so why aren't we creating more opportunities for that? And I think flexible ensemble and flexible difficulty level pieces are the future of that. How, considering that you were going to do this prior to the pandemic anyway, uh, I've noticed a lot of composers getting involved in the, in the movement of of flex band uh, over the last 18 months. And it's been great to see. And I think some of them have really embraced it Uh, while others have, you know, maybe been a little bit more reluctant, but they see the need for it. Um, when you're approaching a composer with the idea of commissioning a, a flex band part from them, uh, and it's not a pandemic, uh, 
how do you how do you approach that? Like, how do you work with the composer to do something interesting that's not limiting their creative uh, ideas? That's a good question. So <laughs> first, I have actually done quite a few flex arrangements for composers. So oftentimes I will volunteer like, hey, let me flex this piece of yours for you. And I'll just take a little cut and you get all the profit for the most part. Um, and so when it's no work for them, you know, they're, they're much more apt to say yes. <laughs> um, in terms of commissioning a brand new piece, sometimes, uh, you know, my, these commissions I did already were during and pre-pandemic. Um, but oftentimes, if it's a, a new composer who maybe doesn't have a lot of commissions on their on the table, they're much more interested of like, wow, I get to write mm. for a more unique ensemble. That sounds fun. That sounds like a challenge. But I, what I would just say, too, is that there are so many schools specifically or just c community groups out there that want and need music like this. And they're maybe not the groups that you're hearing from, like with the big storied programs and the advanced, huge repertoire right. lists. But if you're thinking about how can you make some money, like there are more groups out there that need to purchase music like this <laughs> than are than those top tier groups. So it, to me, it just makes financial sense. I mean, there's surely way more groups out there not talking about commissioning, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, across the world, too. I mean, not just in the USA. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, we'll be talking about your your uh, program and, and we were heard um, in, in a little bit. But but just to preempt that, you know, I, Irish bands, for instance, don't really uh, get involved in the commissioning process. We, we play what's out there. And so we're sort of like all of those bands are kind of like almost the silent majority of bands you yeah. know they're, they're they're just playing the stuff that's put in front of them and to, to my point earlier on of like they're they're playing it in a flex way anyway <laughs> so right. do you think that many composers now that they've dabbled um do you think that many of them will will continue to do do so i i hope so what i was a little disheartened about is when many ensembles were allowed to go back to full instrumentation. They just dropped flex music like a, like a hot tamale. Mm. Like it just went away. Like, oh, we don't need this anymore. Goodbye. And I totally see a value to it, even with full instrumentation. Right. Because like, think about all the different cool colors you can create when you can give anyone any part. I think it's just super valuable. And in addition to that, like, what if you take your full ensemble and give each third of the group a, a flex piece. Like think about all the cool things you can do in inspiring leadership and some students who normally sit in the middle of the section. Um, so my hope is that ensembles who don't need flex music will consider continuing to play it, especially the ones who maybe have more of a spotlight on them to show what type of advantages ha we have to this music. But what my hope is, is that even with the flex music that's already out there, if composers see that their catalog of flex music continues to be purchased by groups they maybe have never heard of and maybe aren't out there, you know, with huge websites and social media and t turning out CDs, that they'll say, oh, okay, there is value to this. I'll continue to do it. And I'm going to keep commissioning, so I don't know. <laughs> I think we need to start doing it here too. I'd like to chat to you a little bit about the uh, And We Were Heard um, uh, program. But before that, um, let's hear a little bit about what brought you to that um, and, uh, and and find out a little bit about your, your career and, and where it all started. Um, do you come from a musical family? I don't. In fact, my master's degree, I had to do a, a research study and I uh, took a poll of 
some university music majors to see what their childhood backgrounds and experiences were with music prior to becoming university music majors. And overwhelmingly, most at least pre-professional musicians out of the group that I uh, studied had musical families. And I was like one of the the weirdos who like, <laughs> no, my parents can each carry a tune, but they don't play instruments. They don't sing. We didn't have, we just listened to the radio growing up and maybe put on some Italian arias at dinner time because my family's Italian. And that was it. You know, I was put into music lessons, I think as just, you know, here's your music lesson. Here's your sports practice, whatever. I don't even know what you call what you do with sports at this point. But uh, yeah, yeah. Like a couple little like hobbies and, and things, activities for the kids. And I just latched onto music in a way my sisters never did and nobody mm. else in my family has. So, And was it bands that, that kind of push you that way was it in fact it? yes it was I, yeah. I i was selected uh the flute to play because i think my parents thought the flute wouldn't be horrible to listen to being practiced at home <laughs> which is ironic because i switched pretty immediately to piccolo so like haha <laughs> jokes on you, you. Thought you were safe. <laughs> right but um i was i had been placed in the remedial band in sixth grade because i was just faking it for for fourth and fifth grade. And they were like, you're not, you don't know what you're doing. Go to remedial band in, in middle school. <laughs> and I had so much fun in remedial band that I remember thinking to myself, how can I have this much fun in a class like this and never leave? Oh, I can be that guy. I can be the guy on the podium. I can be the band director. And then on top of it, I would get to pick all the music. So like that power trip felt really awesome. So I decided when I was 11 that I just wanted to be a band director and here I am. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's such a, such a, did you dabble or did you consider anything else over, over the years? Was there any sort of non-music paths that opened up? I think I always wanted to be a teacher. And if, if music didn't okay. work out, I would have been a math teacher. Math. Because okay. I love but, math. You know, the math and music, they're, they're, they're sort of related in, in many mm -hmm. ways. So that, that, that makes a lot of sense. You actually worked for some time as a as a, a as a marching band director as well is that right you you have a history with marching band uh, i know a lot of the people that listen to the podcast are marching arts uh, fans drum corps fans yes. um tell me a little bit about your your time in marching band is it something that you still have a passion for uh so interestingly enough my high school didn't have marching band my undergraduate didn't have marching band so oh. when i got out to my first position as a a middle school, junior high band and orchestra director. I had no marching band experience whatsoever. And I thought I needed some. So I called up the school that my junior high fed into and just asked if I could come watch. <laughs> and so I spent the first year observing. I spent the second year helping with music. By the third year, I was feeling more comfortable. Like I can help with visual stuff now. And eventually I became the assistant director helping write or arrange music, a drill as well. And when the director retired, actually quite suddenly in the uh, the day before band camp, I took over. <laughs> so um, so I was the head director for, for just two years before I moved on to do my doctorate. But I kind of did figure it out. Uh, our, my last year as a marching band director, we, we swept the season undefeated, I guess, first uh, place at each like 
competition we went to. So I was like, wow. okay, I, f- I figured out how to do that. Let's let's move on. Um, <laughs> and I like marching, marching band. band. <laughs> I, <picked> marching band. <laughs> I like marching band, but I'm very philosophically opposed to American football. So I don't like how they're how they're like intertwined um, and depend. You know, marching band is so dependent on American football. And I also don't like being outside when I don't like being outside. So um, between those two things, like if marching band was inside and had nothing to do with football, like how the Japanese do it. Oh my gosh, that would be, I would love that. Hey, yeah, listen, that, you're, you're, that's a big call out to DCI's sound sport division. That's what we, yes. we just all embrace sound sport and yes. just put on uh, events that are just about marching band. You know, look, or BOA, just put a cover over the stadium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, like, is it something that you, um, there's, there's always this debate between marching band and concert band and which has more value and yeah. so on. I was just on at I two days after my chemo this last Saturday I was at 12 hours at a marching band competition adjudicating so I do love marching band I just as long as it's connected with football and outside I don't want to run one <laughs> <laughs> Well you know what you can come here to Ireland and uh, and and be part of our marching bands because we don't have American football here <laughs> Okay that sounds like a plan um so tell me a little bit about your uh position now and, and then maybe that will bring us nicely into uh, talking about the uh, and we were here at Brogham. thank you so i graduated uh with my doctorate in music uh, in wind conducting uh from university of kentucky in 2019 and i took a position at pierce college in puyallup washington which is the in the pacific northwest in the united states uh teaching uh band also music theory, and uh, various general elective courses in music at uh, essentially a junior college or a community college. So students are at our school for about two years, and then they'll transfer and move on to a university to complete their degrees in music or otherwise. Um, But it's an opportunity for me to work with students who sometimes aren't necessarily prepared to take a university audition or they're not really sure what they want to be doing, or they're just super smart and want to save money and get a lot of their required classwork out of the way before they move on to a university. So uh, I really enjoy the position because it gives me an opportunity to work with like a really diverse group of students and also support them in a way that they might not have had um, prior to getting to our school. And and so you've also been uh, quite, uh, quite an advocate for a number of different uh, campaigns and and ideas within our community uh, you know you're uh, you're a member founding member of the the girls who conduct and member of the national band association college band directors and then women band director international then as well um tell me a little bit about your work in those areas you know do you find sort of the political aspect of what we do it's probably the wrong word for political but that idea of advocate advocation and you know um kind of the movers and shakers and convincing people to get um to to, to change the way we do things is, is that appealing is that something that you get you know a, a lot of joy out of yes um i would say that in terms of my membership within the larger organizations, I, I definitely, I pay my dues and I read the emails and I attend meetings. <laughs> um, I'm not necessarily like, I don't know. I think I'm an anarchist a little bit, not like in a dangerous sort of way, but I tend to not find n- 
my my niche in some of these really larger organizations. And so I'm always, you know, happy to um, answer calls if, if people need my help on a committee or something like that. But in general, when I've seen problems, um, for instance, uh, the work with And We Were Heard and the work with Girls Who Conduct, I kind of just find it easier to start a new organization. <laughs> and um, that's that's more focused on a, one specific mission. And I guess I would say that just because some of these other organizations are just so large with so much stuff and so much, it takes a lot of time to do stuff. And, and usually I get spun up and just want to do something right then and there. And so needing to get approval from someone just, just takes too long. So I'll just start something new and get, give myself approval. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, I, I definitely get that. One of my biggest concerns, and I, I, I'm going to put the question to you, one of my biggest concerns about doing that is that am I, am I leaving any sort of lasting legacy here? You know, am I, uh, as, as soon as, you know, if something happens to me tomorrow, if I'm, if I'm gone, is there, is there someone to take over this work or is it just, you know, is it just gone? Um, are you bringing people in to, to get involved in these different things as well? And how do you maintain that energy and drive and control once you do that? Absolutely. That, that is a big challenge. Um, so I will say with Girls Who Conduct, I'm, I'm a co-founder and I'm not the head founder. That Our head founder is an orchestral conductor by the name of Chow Wen Ting. And she is a machine. She's just amazing. Like she's scary, like how much work she gets done. <laughs> um, but between her and the rest of us, like we, we're all making it happen. And we, we are branching out into different places where we're various leaders or servants to other leaders within our organization. Um, but that's a pretty tight run ship. And in terms of, and we were heard, um, it is, I do a lot of the work, but, um, if, if I were to have to step down, there's tons of people that just love the mission so much that, that they would fill in hundred percent. Right. And at the same time, if we had to close tomorrow, I, I know we've already made such a difference to many composers that, um, we, I think what we've done is already worth it. It, it, it certainly has been a topic that has got more consideration um, and, and more airtime, you know, uh, on, on you know podcasts and and, and the clinics, and uh, we're hearing more conversation. I know Kate Nishimura is talking about it a lot at the Band Room podcast with Dylan Maddox. Uh, go and subscribe, great podcast. Um, and 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 you're a previous guest of of that podcast too. Um, uh, and and so it is a conversation that's that's happening more and more. It, Let's talk about what motivated you to start and we were heard. So um, was at the time, was it something that was getting as much conversation, as much people talking about it as, as it is now? So previous to my graduate studies, I was at schools that had uh, not a substantial budget for repertoire. So usually my concert programming consisted of, okay, what do we have in the library? Let's pick a theme. Let's make stuff work. Mm. And maybe I have room to like, purchase a couple pieces a year. Um, and I didn't always think about diversity on in, in programming uh, because especially as a junior high and high school band director, like you are doing a bazillion things that pull you away, pull your energy away from, from like kind of those big, big lofty topics. Um, when I got to my graduate work though, I, I really pushed myself to say, I'm going to spend this time and the access to these amazing musicians, the access to my amazing mentor, uh, the access to the amazing budget at University of Kentucky, um, trying to figure out 
more diverse repertoire so that I, I can have the knowledge to then do some good. And so I was already doing that myself. Uh, but the impetus for And We Were Heard actually um, began with a, an argument on the internet, you know, like, like most good things come from the beginning of an <laughs> argument on the internet. Um, and what had happened was in the fall of 2018, there was a big trend of band directors posting the, the entire programming of repertoire that they had selected for their whole season school year. Like, so, oh, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a college band director. I have three groups that I conduct and here's all the music we're going to play the whole year. Isn't this an exciting thing? Comment on my program. And it was actually really fun and interesting. And mm. everybody was discovering new music through that. Um, but a friend of mine on Facebook posted uh, his repertoire for his five ensembles at a high school and was getting all the, you know, compliments and comments and, oh, that's a great piece. And a mutual friend of ours uh, responded to his post with a single uh, short comment of what no women and that was it so she kind of came in and just poked him and then backed off and uh this happened on a saturday in the fall so i was of course with a football and marching band and i was not involved in the conversation at all but i got home that night and saw that there were like 200 plus comments on the on the post by the evening and i went well i'm going to bed and not worrying about that and the next morning, uh, <laughs> the best the best thing to do with Facebook comments, I, I think. <laughs> do not disturb. Okay, put that away. Um, and the next morning, the original poster reached out to me because he knew I was mutual friends with the the woman who had started the the argument, if you will, about no women composers on his program. And he was kind of looking for validation from me, like, "Isn't it okay that I did that? Isn't she wrong? Or wasn't she mean?" And like this and that and the other. And my response was, well, you may not have liked her tone, but she's totally right. Like what, what the heck you programmed an entire year of music and not a single woman on this and just own it. Like just say, whoops, my bad. Um, if you're going to say anything. And his response was that he had looked for music by women, um, but he just didn't know where to find it. He had a few names and he would go to a woman's website to try and find a piece of hers that might work but he couldn't find recordings. He didn't have time to peruse the scores um, and he just couldn't find anything at work. So he just gave up. And I, um, I guess to me, I'm, I'm a little more dogged, I suppose, than this individual. So I was just like, well, why would you give up at that point? I would just keep looking until I found something that worked. But um, really what it spoke to me was that if reference recordings are what we need, in our very limited time to decide if a piece is going to work for us or not, then let's just get the reference recordings made. Like how hard would that be? And it kind of clicked in my head instantly. Like if composers need reference recordings to get their music programmed and ensembles want to be playing this music anyways, they can make the reference recordings for free and they can give the music to the mm -hmm. reference recording ensemble for free. And it's just like a win-win. So all we have to do is be a dating service to match these groups. That's all that needs to happen. And so I invited the original poster and the woman uh, who started the argument, Mary Kate McNally, who is now one of our like head people in the organization, uh, to help me get this started. And by Midwest 2018, we had little business cards that we were launching and we got our first recording um, by a friend who I reached out to specifically, hey, will you record this piece for us? So we got something for the website. And um, we were anticipating maybe only a dozen 
groups and a dozen composers would kind of just be like, you know, putting stuff out there and we'd, we'd post a few recordings a year, but it turned out a lot of people really were excited about the service. And so by, I think the end of the first month that we were calling for scores, we had 60 plus composers having, um, submitted at least the, the opening form, not necessarily their music yet. And, um, by now we've had, I don't know, 200 ensembles, um, fill out paperwork to, to start recording with us, whether they have or not yet. But we are now branching out from wind band, which is where we originally started to orchestra. Um, we're working on launching our choir branch ASAP. Eventually we want to move into chamber music and then jazz as well. So, uh, it's just every time we open a new branch, I, I need a new group of people to help work with that branch. Since that's not my specialty, I stay with the band and I stay with the oversight. Um, we also just uh, launched the nonprofit status as well. So that's exciting because all our donations won't be taxed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> always, always a plus. Um, uh, t- tell me, one of the biggest challenges, I think, is what you mentioned, um, you know, trying to get people to just look a little bit harder. Um, and I think I think we all fall into this trap of um, looking at the big um, distributors, uh, the big publishers, and just googling just you know what's what's available there. How can we how can we convince people or get people to spend a little bit more time? How can we you know what can the Global Band Room podcast do? What can what can we all do uh, a little bit more to try and encourage people to do their research? Because I, I see one of the stats on your on your website here, and I, and I'm wondering is this still the case? Uh, how 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 up to date this is? It's, it's the USA's largest music distributor, not named, very political. Uh, <laughs> uh, website advertises just sixty one pieces by female composers in their four thousand six hundred and thirty two work band concert and contest catalog. That is, I, I knew it would be small, but that is insane. That's 1.3%. That is 1.3%. That is even, I mean, I knew it was going to be small, but that is way smaller than I thought it would even be. Um, I mean, where do we, and, and I'm, I'm sure, and we were here.org is where we start, but like, how do we start talking to our, uh, and I, I, I think of band directors that I know, and I have heard them say the words, if there's good stuff out there, we'll play it. And it's they're, they're not actually even looking any harder. Uh, how do we start? How do we start I, to convince people? I have so many answers for you, Keith. <laughs> um, first, good. I have talked to that distributor before. They actually reached out to me and they asked, what can we do? And I gave them 10 bullet points and they told me how every single one of those wasn't going to work. So um, mm. they may have added more women composers to that particular list, but they've also added more men. And the last time I ran the numbers, it's the percentage is still the same. Mm. Um, the big distributors can answer ask, to the, out, yeah. out, of, out of interest. Yeah. C- can you give me an example of one of the bullet points that you might've suggested to them that they had a reason why it wouldn't work? Uh, so one of the, one of the issues is that almost no women or composers of color end up on the editor's choice list. And I okay. told them we, we need more women composers and uh, 
composers of color on the editor's choice list, can you at least maybe for the first round when you make some changes, come up with a quota and just make sure a certain number is represented? And what their response was is that their editor's choice list is dictated to them by the large publishers who send them program notes and descriptions of the piece advertising. And so that's what they include on their editor's choice list. And because women and composers of color are coming in as self-published people, um, they don't have that same kind of weight or um, push. And so they're not going to end up on the list. Um, I mean, all, that doesn't yeah. seem like, I mean, well, then change how you weigh the list. Sure. Well, then they would have to pay someone at their company to actually create a real editor's choice list instead of just getting copy from their publishers. It's a pretty big company. <laughs> I think uh -huh. they could probably... I'm sure there's plenty of people that would actually even volunteer to do something like that. That that doesn't seem like a um, like an insurmountable uh, obstacle to get past. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ah, that's crazy. But, uh, sorry, wait, but I, I, I mean, did interrupt you. No, I just, when it comes down to it, though, their editor's choice list isn't really their editor's choice list. They're just pushing copy from publishers. And so mm. when, when we're thinking about going to that list and saying, well, this must be the best of the best, like it's all, it's just a, it's just a magic trick. It's just an illusion, you know? Um, but in terms of what individual um, ensemble directors can do, first of all, it, you kind of need to tap into your own motivation strategies. So for me, when I am thinking about finding more pieces by underrepresented composers, I kind of treat it like a puzzle or a scavenger hunt for myself because, you know, I tell myself I'm I'm smart. I'm cheeky. I know how to solve problems. And um, so telling myself that I'm going to go out there and do that scavenger hunt I put on myself to go find a piece that fits the right difficulty level, the right number of minutes and the right theme of music uh, by an underrepresented composer. Um, but maybe you don't have that kind of motivation. So another motivation could just be like, put an hour or two hours on your schedule every month to just go sit and listen, just listen to music by underrepresented composers. It doesn't have to be the perfect grade level for your ensemble. It doesn't even have to be music by for your ensemble, but listening to it helps you to start engaging with other voices. And you might say, oh, well, I really enjoyed that piece. It was a little too hard for my group. Let me go research and see if that person wrote a, an easier piece. Or, hey, I've got the emotional budget right now to take on uh, being a commissioning consortia head. So I'm going to, for next year, plan on commissioning a piece for my ensemble level by this composer because I love their music. And so, so maybe just giving yourself, you know, obligating yourself if you're somebody who needs to follow obligations more. Um, but that's another idea as well. Or just um, make it make it social. How about you and a few friends from, you know, your local area or all over the world? This is the Global Band Room podcast after mm -hmm. all. Um, how about everybody sign into a Zoom happy hour and everybody bring one piece by an underrepresented composer and then listen to it and share and um, and give each other feedback. It's fun. It's a party. So there's lots of different ways to do it. There's literally no excuse for all of the ways. Well, well, let me just uh, let me let me just promote my my other podcast, uh, Repertoire Happy Hour, where we all have a drink and plan an imaginary concert every month, uh, and it will be on this Saturday, October thirtieth, uh, with myself, Gail Brechting, uh, talking about spectacular band <laughs> following. So, uh, yes, a, a a party where you plan repertoire is definitely to be advised. 
I, I want to go back on your talk about the uh, consortia uh, actually as a way forward here because let me present a problem that I had this summer. Um, my band is playing grade one material right now at the moment. Um, and beginner band music is is very specialist. Uh, there's not much of it uh, uh, being written by uh, uh, Irish composers. Um, and so I'm always uh, having to look to the big publishers to find appropriate uh, grade one music. We play a lot of Brian Balmages. We uh, absolutely love playing uh, his music and uh, Richard Sosedo and, and some some really great grade one music. But it's not particularly diverse because it's grade one music. I can't even find grade one music by Irish composers. So... The idea of putting a consortia together, you know, and, and trying to lead the charge on, on maybe encouraging some Irish composers to write for my band um, is, is really um, appealing to me. However, I've never done a, done a consortia be, before. What would you advise someone like me or other band directors around the world that can't afford commission but might be interested in leading a consortia like this? How do we go about doing that? It's a great question. So the first thing I would consider is what your budget is. And based on your budget, you would do the math then. Um, how, how many people would you need at that budget to commission a piece the size you're looking for? It depends on the composer. Some composers scale their commissioning fee based on the difficulty level, and some don't. Some will just charge the same amount per music, whether it's something for a professional group or grade one. A lot of composers say grade one is like trying to write a masterpiece with two I was going to ask, is it more expensive cramps? or less expensive yeah. than grade one? I have no yeah. idea. <laughs> Let's take away your 64 crayons. You get two crayons. <laughs> build us a masterpiece. Um, right. So yeah, it depends. Um, oftentimes grade one though is a shorter difficulty or sh shorter length. So that can be, um, you know, help out on the budget. Um, but bringing together a group uh, of maybe 10, 20 band directors who are already interested and can probably safely meet the, the budget of what the bare minimum buy-in would be, um, can be a really great way to approach a composer. Like, hey, we already have 15 groups that want to buy this piece for mm -hmm. you, so we can offer this much, but also leaving room to hear back from the composer. Like, does that fit with what your fee is or what is your scale? So we can go back to the drawing board and decide if we need to adjust how many consortium members or what the buy-in fee is going to be. What I also do too is, um, and this is what I learned from one of my mentors, Edwin Powell, who's the director of bands at Pacific Lutheran University, right down the road from me. Um, but he does a no cap um, con commissioning consortia, meaning that there is a budget to reach, but he will continue to try and get as many groups on board. And so that can be really attractive too for the composer because, you know, maybe they're going to charge $5,000 for, this is American dollars. I'd I'm not sure how the translation works there, but uh, $5,000 American for, um, you know, a grade one piece. But if, if you can get more than 20 consortium members, then every new consortium member, they're getting an extra $100. And so mm. that can be really rewarding for them because maybe they're going to, my last commission, we just gave her double what she asked for wow. because we had so many groups. Yeah. Um, so many groups involved. So that can be really great too. And then the other thing I would encourage is be open to sharing and giving feedback to the uh, composer, especially if it's their first piece they've written at that level. So I generally share a rubric of grade difficulties of band music. Um, so saying like, here are the ranges we should be working within, here are the rhythmic difficulties, the 
like the counterpoint difficulties, things like that. And then um, being very just open to like, hey, I'll I'd be happy to give you feedback on all of your work as you're going. And if you as the consortium head aren't comfortable with that, maybe consider bringing on another consortium head with you who um, has some experience working with composers mm -hmm. or feels comfortable about giving feedback like that. So it can just be a really great positive experience for the composer. I think it's a great model for bands around the world that may not be as um, familiar with the idea of commissioning to maybe start looking at something like this, um, start connecting with uh, groups uh, like And We Were Heard and, and start getting advice on how they may uh, commission some of their local composers that are maybe composing professionally, but maybe not for wind band and maybe not for their particular community band. Um, so thank you for, for all your advice on that, Caitlin. Um, I'm, lo I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what we can do with my own band. Um, Absolutely. Tell me a little bit more about uh, Girls Who Conduct. Um, uh, what was the um, it, it, what was the the idea behind setting that up? Because there are a number of associations around women band directors. What what makes what makes that association unique? What's its unique goals? Great question. So as I mentioned before, Girls Who Conduct was uh, founded specifically by our, our head founder, uh, Chow Wen Ting, uh, back in 2020. And we had started to talk about it back in 2019, but we launched in 2020. Um, and the goal of uh, Girls Who Conduct is mentorship for all women and non-binary conductors, regardless of what ensemble type they wave a stick at, if you will. Mm. Um, because yes, there is Women Band Director International and we have Women Rising to the Podium, which is a little bit more of a like a social group, if you will. Um, but there are a lot of groups specifically for women band directors. And then um, there's groups for women directors of Broadway music, women directors of opera, um, maybe a little bit. Uh, there's, there's some things geared towards uh, women orchestral conductors, although I don't know about a specific like core organization. But the point is, is that when we're siloed like that, um, you're only working with other women who almost share an identical experience as you. And it can be challenging to, to grow um, or to get the kind of feedback that you might need in a more general sense. And so what's really exciting about Girls Who Conduct is um, the fellowship that we've been able to build across ensemble types, I think has been extremely invaluable. Um, not only for us who are the, the founders, because we're constantly in a group chat, like asking each other for advice and asking how something works in like another field that's not quite like the way we do it and kind of getting ideas from each other. But um, with our mentees from our first mentorship program back in 2021, we had girls coming from band, orchestral, choral backgrounds in conducting, and they were able to learn about all the other mediums, um, including also opera um, film conducting, um, Broadway conducting, and it gives them the sense that, hey, even if you came from one background, you can be multifaceted. You can do one and another. You're not only preparing yourself to, uh, to be a director of one specific type. And myself as well, um, mm. this year I took over our string orchestra program at Pierce, and I had never conducted a collegiate level uh, orchestra. I had taught junior high beginning orchestra. Um, but coming from the band background, like it was not a lot of preparation for, for orchestral conducting in the way I had from band. And I was actually a little nervous at first. Um, and I got a lot of advice from my orchestra colleagues at Girls Who Conduct. In fact, I'm the only band representative currently 
in Girls Who Conduct. Everybody else is orchestral or choral or opera. Really? Yeah. So okay. I'm actually the one. <laughs> they're always being like, how does band work? That's such a weird <laughs> thing. And I'm like, let me tell you. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, actually, like, is... is uh... Is band more male-dominated than other forms? You know, it seems to be that maybe choral conducting may be a little bit more open and may may have more representation from women. Um, maybe I'm just basing that on my own observations. Um, but it, it, is band particularly uh, dominated by men? Um, I would say band... Band has a lot of women at the younger levels, for instance, teaching junior high. Mm. Um, or elementary school band programs. Once you move into the high school program where there's this sense of like, we need a strong man to conduct the marching band or, you know, direct the marching band. Um, and, or, you know, someone who's not going to go home and have to take care of her kids, you know, there's these horrible, like sexist stereotypes, um, women drop off. And then at the, the uh, collegiate level, women drop off. So that's, that's an issue in, in the band world, but I would say, yeah, what choir has more women conductors, I think orchestra is probably about the same percentage as band. When you look at the, the age split, you know, as you move into the more professional groups, I mean, in the United States, we, we just, we don't currently have a, a female conductor of a, of a top tier, uh, orchestra. They just announced a woman who was going to be joining. Um, oh my gosh, now I'm going to forget which which orchestra it is. I want to say Atlanta. Oh, maybe cut this if I'm not right. <laughs> but they just announced one woman who's going to be taking over a professional orchestra, um, like the top tier professional mm. orchestra next year. But but at Marin Alsop um, <laughs> retired. She retired from Baltimore, and so there were no women left. I was going to so, ask, though, like I was going to ask, I was like instantly, I was like Marin also, but the fact that we're like that, that, that everyone goes to that one person. <laughs> well, like, and oh. yeah, she can't, she can't take, she can't represent all of us. You know what I mean? Like, what? That's <laughs> right. not like stop putting that on her. Like, it shouldn't just mm. be like, well, there's one, so aren't you satisfied? No. Yeah. And she left, so there's zero right now. <laughs> zero, man. <laughs> Girls who conduct, if if. Uh, people would like to find out more about that and find out how they can get support and uh, help and advice. Uh, where where can they go? Absolutely. So uh, Girls Who Conduct, our website is uh, girlswhoconduct.org. We also have a pretty active Instagram and Facebook uh, social media presence. Uh, generally, what we're doing right now, we have a few different programs. One program is geared towards uh, 16 to 22-year-old young women and non-binary musicians interested in the field of conducting. So they may be pre-college or um, in the first undergraduate experience in college. And so it's trying to support and build that interest in conducting that they may want to continue on with graduate work and conducting or just taking more opportunities for themselves in conducting. We also um, had this last year a conference where we brought in uh, an international panel of of women conductors from band, orchestra, choir, military musician, conductors, uh, opera, Broadway, film, um, and they spoke in their various areas. Um, and we uh, have a fellowship program currently going on where the, uh, sorry, the Georgia Symphony Orchestra is hosting six of our uh selected fellows for uh, three engagements throughout this current season 
for um, conducting uh, the actual Georgia Symphony Orchestra, which is amazing. And uh, there's actually at least one international fellow. So she's flying in every weekend that they have those um, fellowship conducting opportunities. And then finally, we are working on a curriculum for about the middle school, junior high, high school age, uh, where uh, any interested uh, music teacher could start a club for girls who conduct at their own school to basically put together an ensemble and um, help teach really, really young, early pre-professional conductors how to get that leadership and podium experience. Well, there'll be links to uh, this and to the and we were heard websites in the show notes uh, as well as well as their Instagram and Facebook accounts. So you can head to the show notes right now and click on those and uh, make sure you subscribe and like and read all about these these great organisations. Uh, Caitlin, uh, before we go, I want to make sure that we uh, find out a little bit more about you. Uh, in a non-music sense, uh, with the the new segment of the show called Off the Rostrum, uh, where we find out a little bit about your your uh, passions and likes and some of the things that you get up to. Um, let me start with a, a nice simple one. What was the most recent book that you've read? Book that I've read? I, I listen to books on tape and I... That counts. That counts. Okay. I was part of a debate recently about uh, whether the word read can be applied to uh, audiobooks. And I think I think it can. So, okay. Um, yeah, that counts. Because reading, <laughs> reading on the physical page is like my sleepy time. Like, I'm like, oh, I need to take a nap. Let me go. Let me go read. <laughs> um, and I do love reading. It's just, it makes me so sleepy. I can't do it. Mm. Um, so, hmm, the last book I read was probably some sort of self-help book. Um, one that I've I keep telling everybody about, so I'll maybe this, it might not have been the most recent one, but it's called the the four tendencies by Gretchen Rubin. And Mm. it basically explores what your motivational tendency type is. Um, and also the other three that you are not. And so it just helps promote better working relationships with, you know, the people in your house and your friends and coworkers or your students, um, anyone you're kind of coming into contact with is just how to get along with people based on their motivational types. So I really like that book. Out of, out of interest. Um, so it's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Oh yeah. That's that the second question is which tendency are you? (laughs) I'm a questioner. And my favorite (laughs) thing is don't tell to say is don't tell me what to do. I can't, if you just tell me what to do and don't explain why I need to do it, I will literally pitch a fit. Like it's the, <laughs> I, it's the worst thing you can possibly do. So yeah, I'm totally a questioner. And now that I know that about myself, I'm like, oh, I just need to convince myself that something is worth doing and I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know how to motivate you. Yep. Um, how do you keep fit? Uh, oh, uh, I do yoga. I run. I do hit cardio. I eat a low inflammation diet that includes organic, mostly vegan uh, foods and occasionally sushi. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah, sushi. Sushi is not something that we we are an island nation in Ireland, and we don't do sushi. I think it's what. It's, 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 well, it's available, but not widely. We're not a big fish-eating country, actually, I don't think. Um, yeah, it's it's strange. Um, are you an introvert or an extrovert? 
What do you think, Keith? <laughs> I mean, see, this is the thing. I asked Mark Moret this the other day, and yeah. uh, and he said yes to that question. Oh, uh, you know, like I think some people, I I think you're an extrovert. I'm an extrovert. Yes. But then some extroverts say that they're introverts, but they're not really. No, they're liars. Um, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> I feel like at all times the universe is contained in my body and is about to explode. So. <laughs> Okay, yes. well, so it's totally clear. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite fast food? Uh, hmm, breakfast burritos. Breakfast? From where? Anywhere. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. I don't really eat fast food fast food because of my weird diet um also we hadn't mentioned it on the podcast but yeah i'm currently undergoing breast cancer treatment so i'm i'm in that phase of my breast cancer treatment where uh it's like oh anything i put in my body is probably poison let's just not eat anything um but yeah i've definitely cut back on on sugary or fatty or fried or anything which i i didn't actually eat very much prior to my um diagnosis which is also probably potentially why it was caught at such a early stage um is that you know i was keeping my body low toxin to begin with but yeah put a breakfast burrito in front of me from literally anywhere and i'm gonna have a good time so so i want to know though like what what is a breakfast burrito in california as opposed to what a breakfast burrito might be here in ireland because i'm just thinking of a burrito with like irish sausage and egg and black pudding like blood pudding i think you call it and egg and like, I mean, I think an Irish breakfast burrito will be very different to California. So what's, what, I mean, what I would that sounds great, although it would have to be like a veggie blood sausage, um, if that's even possible. I don't think I possible. mentioned any veg there. <laughs> I don't think I mentioned one veg. Um, so for me, if I was going to get a breakfast burrito, it would have, so tortilla, egg. I usually go no cheese, but cheese is quite common. Tater tots. You have to have tater. Do you know what? It, okay. Do you guys have tater tots? I, I'm Irish. We do, but we we, we we do potato. We do all. I know. Potatoes. I okay. So you do know what a tater yes. tots? Is. Okay. okay. So yeah, yeah. Tater tots. That has to be the type of or French fries, but tater tots is better. Um, peppers, mushrooms, spinach, um, onions, uh, and yeah, that's that's uh, avocado, that's salsa, avocado and mm. salsa. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. good! It's 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 very different to what an Irish bread, breakfast burrito will be, but it sounds okay. great. It sounds lovely. I'll, I'll make sure to have <laughs> something like that when I'm on the West Coast. Um, yes. So, uh, if money wasn't an object, what would you do all day? Teach band. I would do it any I differently, would, though. I, yes, I would use that money to pay my students to practice their dang <laughs> instruments. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. That's that's fair. <laughs> I would use my my unlimited Jeff Bezos resources for good and not evil. Yes. <laughs> well, I have one last question, and it's in, it's in relation to uh, the big event that's coming up in the band world in the next uh, in in the, in the next few months. What is your top tip for attending the Midwest Clinic? Every year I bring sandwiches from home and I get stopped by TSA <laughs> in the airport. It's so expensive to eat there. So I want to spend all my money on dinner and just deprive myself and eat peanut butter 
for like lunch and like a granola bar and a banana. So I will literally bring breakfast and lunch with me on the plane. Um, and then. That, and then that is we'll, the best tip that I've heard so far. Uh, the yeah. rest of them are music related, but bring, bringing extra food <laughs> is yeah. the best tip. They're the tips that I, that we, that we, that we come here for this, to this podcast for. Yeah, uh, in a related tip actually is if you have ex- access to the lounge in your hotel, take as many bottles of water as you possibly can. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. We, and we were heard we'll have a booth in the exhibit hall. So catch me at the booth eating a smushed peanut butter sandwich. Uh, Any. <laughs> time during the exhibit hours caitlin it's been fantastic to get to know you more on the podcast um very much looking forward to seeing you at midwest and, and seeing yeah. you at the booth and, and and seeing that peanut butter it's butter sandwich um <laughs> if people want to find out more about you um i, I will have sh- links to 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 your organizations in the show notes uh, but people want to find out more about you and connect with you how can they do that I do have a website, it's CaitlinBove.com, and it also includes all of my open education resource uh, course units for the classes that I teach at Pierce College. So if you need some resources in uh, pop music or world music or music theory, feel free to use my website. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Kate Love Band. that's K-A-I-T-L-U-V-B-A-N-D. Um, on both of those. I, I have a lot of pending friend requests on Facebook, so don't get your feelings hurt if I don't <laughs> respond, but you can follow um, for sure. And Instagram, you can see me post pictures of all of my cute chemo wigs and my cute dog and mushrooms because I love taking photos of mushrooms as well. Caitlin, it's great having you here. Uh, best of luck over the coming weeks and, uh, and happy Halloween. Thank you. You too, Keith. Good luck with your concert. Thank you so much again for joining me and my guests in the band room this week. I'll be back next episode talking to more great guests from around the band world. So head over to wherever you get your podcasts from and make sure you subscribe. If you've enjoyed the episode, maybe even leave us a review and share it with your band buddies. In the meantime, you can stay up to date with me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom and on our website, globalbandroom.com. Until next time, I'll see you back in the band room.